Frank, 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 how's it going, buddy? Ah, oh, it's going very well. I'm still in New York, still trying to be productive, but there's a lot of distractions here. <laughs> there's so many things to do. It's like there's a lot of people that live in a whole city that you can go and explore. And they do wild and crazy things, and you just want to sit there and watch them and study those wild creatures of New York City. <laughs> Are you mostly people watching? No, I would never say that. I am joining in in, in the activities sometimes. So okay, you are a, a, <laughs> a social people watcher then, a, no. a person a person that not only watches but participates, a participating people watcher. I don't like this line of interrogation. I'm feeling very exposed now. <laughs> <laughs> well, I heard that you were able to cycle through the city pretty elegantly, a mission accomplished. You basically crushed New York. Is that correct? Yeah, I think I'm building up to that point where you reach overconfidence and something terrible happens. So I'm trying to rein it in. But yeah, I'm I'm having a lot of fun. Um, it's definitely the most fun way to get around the city, except it's been raining and pouring the last few days. So yeah. no biking. Yeah, happens. Well, I will follow up here, Frank, with some great news because we had a listener right into you, not to me, actually. So I had no <laughs> idea until you told me. But TJ tweeted at you and said, hey. I used to work in the music biz, and I can tell you that back in the day when kiddos bought records and CDs, that 500,000 copies sold was a gold record. So we are officially gold record certified, Frank. There you go. You have full approval now to get that thing printed, made, spend lots of money to make yourself a plaque. Congratulations, James. <laughs> the question is, will that gold plaque cost more money than any money that we generate from the show ever. I pretty much guarantee it. But, uh, you know, foolish things are the best things sometimes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's this thing. But I'm glad that people were listening and they followed up. I'm very excited about it. I'm very excited that we we crushed that that mark and that, you know, we are now past 110 onto 111. Oh, right. Okay, jeez. These numbers are staggering. I'm just looking for that million dollar. Is that platinum? I think I think that should just be our goal. We'll I think there. the more the more episodes we produce, the more downloads we will get. That's my, uh, my math. We're gaming the system. We're just going to keep recording until the number gets high enough. I like it. It's a surefire plan. By sure mathematics. That's how it will work. <laughs> oh, my. Well, I will say, Frank, I'm very excited about today's topic, and I do want to jump right into it because I've been recently with Xamarin Essentials, which, you know, I've been working on quite near and dear to my heart. Recently, I've been working with a lot of people in the open source community, implementing new features, but then also looking at a lot of performance and refactoring of our code. And I recently ran into a situation that I was refactoring a struct. So, you know, a struct, oh. it's like a class, yeah. but it's not on the stack. Wait, no, it's on the heap. It's it's on the other thing, the thing. <laughs> It's on the thing. It could actually, it can go a few places, to be honest. But by default, it's just on the stack. Yeah. So they're they're efficient because you're not allocating them. Uh, value types, they're called in the CLR. Yeah, so we're doing so an episode on performance. We're just going to talk structs and performance. This sounds fun. It's a little bit because I know that you love performance. <laughs> and I figure why not talk about performance and talk about the intricacies of a struct. Because here's what I thought, Frank. I thought that when I had a struct and it had a few properties such as doubles and strings, perhaps, that um, I didn't have to do anything else. I was like, oh, I just have a struct with a few, a few things. But let me describe what the struct originally had. The struct um, 
had a few doubles and a few strings, like I said, but mm-hmm. they were auto properties. So they had getters and setters. I had a single constructor that set those things. And it was just a normal struct, public struct screen metrics. And that was yeah. it. And I was done. Does that seem like I'm done? Uh, you have a hybrid struct. I like to think of them because um, a struct, like we were saying, lives on the stack usually. But in your case, you have strings in it. So it has pointers off to the heap. So you actually have a complex struct. But the truth is, yeah, you're, you're done. Like, what more do you have to do? Because all you wanted to do was bottle up some data, be able to pass it around. That's what structs are for. Just, you know, a convenient way to name and place data together. There's no behavior associated with it. Yeah, you're done. Congrats. Done. <laughs> Except for the fact that this struct is now mutable. Right. Yeah. Because there's a getter and setter, and that seems kind of anti-struct. Mm-hmm. You know, the problem with structs is we can use them for so many different things. So I guess in this case, you have to describe how do you expect users uh, to interact with this thing? Will they be creating them often, or are they just reading data? You know, so what, what's the, what's its life like? So these structs are when you register for a change handler of when your screen dimensions or a sensor changes, we want to propagate that data to you. You are never creating these. You're only ever mm-hmm. reading information from them ever. Yeah. So it's just a bag of data. Yeah. Nice, simple use there. Yes. So what problems can you run into? You tell well, me. Well, the first issue that we ran into was someone goes, hey, um, I don't know if you can really compare things. Like, can you compare two of those correctly? Like, you know, equals. And I go, well, why would you equals? You would just be like, you compare the values inside, right? And in fact, what this is mm-hmm. where it came up because I had some code that I was writing where I didn't want to, sometimes on Android, it fires multiple events, even though the values are the same, but I only sure. want to propagate one event. So I put in checks to say only propagate if, you know, everything has changed. So I was writing, I was saying, if with equals equals with or dun, 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 right back and forth. And someone goes, just use an equals. And then then performance got got in there, <laughs> got in the way. Yeah, because all all structs apparently do not equal because there's 18 ways to equal and not equal and equals equals and equals and equals inside of a struct. Oh, Lord. <laughs> not just a struct the clr is full of equals and c sharp has equals f sharp has equals equals are everywhere oh boy so much to decompose here <laughs> well so you know i would break it down to something even easier so let's say that we remove the fact that there's strings and let's just say there's doubles inside of it so maybe i have two doubles now in the in the realistic world I could say double equals 0.0 and double 2 equals or d1 and d2 equals 0 and equals 0 and then you could say well that should equals equals each other yeah. it you could check it does not equals or you could say d1 dot equals d2 and those value checks are all the same the problem is when you put those inside of a struct and you have a value, you could then say, let's say this is my double, right? And it's a struct and it has one value, which is a double of value. And if you set those and you say, well, new my double, pass it D1 and then you new my Mm -hmm. double and say, pass Mm -hmm. it the other value, those don't equal each other, even though they do equal each (laughs) other, you know? You assume they do. (laughs) You assume they do because the values inside equal each other. However, this is not the case. And I didn't realize this. And 
then I was sitting with Dom, Dominic Luis, and he was like, oh yeah, that does don't equal each other at all. He's like, you got to do an yeah. air quality comparer and you got to do some hash stuff. And I'm like, well, well why, why? I don't understand. How come I got to <laughs> do this? I don't want to hash code stuff. And then I got into the nitty gritty of performance. And this is where it got really, really interesting because it all happens around boxing allocations in the CLR. Oh boy. Yeah. <laughs> I want to rewind a tiny bit though. Uh, going back to all the equalities, I was reading a book once. It was like an introduction to programming and they had a wonderful turn of phrase and it was, every object has an equals function on it. That function always returns false. And it was just, <laughs> it was a reminder to you that never trust the default implementation of it. If you want equals to work, you kind of have to implement your own. And, um, you mentioned boxing. There, there's a million reasons why that thing can fail. Um, you know, objects pointed, there can just be raw pointers pointing to things that you assume equality would work with, but it doesn't because it doesn't have enough type information. But yeah, where should we even begin? Should we name all the equals that you can do? Should we name all the quirks with the default equality? But I think the rule is just don't rely on the default equality. You can rely on... Um, Object has a thing called reference equality, and that's great for objects, but does not work for structs. So you just can't even use it for structs. Uh, you can use that, but structs, boxing. So what do you know about it? What do you think is wrong with it? <laughs> well, so the very first thing I thought about in this structure was to just override equals, you know, just override equals. That seems like the that function should called equals we should be clear there is, there is a function called equals that takes in an object and you can override just like you can override to string or get hash code on anything you can do that so i go oh i will just override this single call and that should solve all of my problems because then i can compare all the values that are mm -hmm. inside of my struct and if those aren't equal then guess what they're not equal because you're kind of underlying that. And in this instance, I wrote some beautiful, elegant code Dom and I did where you make sure that the object isn't null. And then yeah. you can use like object is screen metrics, metrics, beautiful, just beautiful <laughs> C sharpness, right? Just uh, <laughs> so great um, inside of here. And then you can actually call equals on the screen metrics and compare the values inside. And at that point I go, oh, that's, that's really good because I have equals. So that's the first one. I go mission accomplished. But then what if someone does equals equals or does not equals like bang equals, you know what I mean? Like exclamation yeah, exactly. point equals. So why I didn't understand why those are in there. So maybe you can kind of unpack yeah. what, what I did and then what I didn't do. <laughs> uh, yeah. So um, every object in C sharp, whether it's a value type or reference type has that equals override, just like you said. So it's an override. The problem is it's rooted so higher up in that hierarchy that its argument is an object. And so that means it can literally take in anything. And this is from those bad old C-sharp one days when we used ArrayList and we didn't have generics. And so like we were constantly turning things into objects. It's actually kind of how the Java world exists where everything truly is a reference type object. These value types, these structs that we have that kind of want to live on the stack, they're pretty unique to the CLR and kind of account for some of its performance advantages. I say some of, but honestly, like all the perf stuff uh, they're doing in um, .NET Core and ASP.NET and all that is 
a lot of just maximizing the utility of these structs because they are fast and just changing libraries so that we use them more. So that's why we got our span type. And that's why we got our value tuple type <laughs> that you're, well, well, won't give too much away, but we'll be talking about that in this episode. But um, right, so you have this equals function, every object implements it. The problem is no one actually types object.equals because we're all kind of C programmers and we want to type object equals equals something mm-hmm. else. It's just what comes natural to you. No one wants to be the Java way. It's ugly. It's dumb. So, yeah. but yeah, but the onerous is on the person writing the type. You have to write your equals function, but at the same time, you also have to implement equals equals and not equals uh, bang equals. Yeah. And those are really fun because how you implement them is not really, I mean, it's just sort of magic because for me, you go, it's public static bool operator equals equals. And then you have like a tuple type in there that says screen metrics left, screen metrics right, and then it returns a bool. So it's like a fun, it's like a, a deconstructor in some way, you know, when you're yeah. like, oh, and then squiggly. And like, you, and you're like, you forget that these things exist, but then they do. And you're like, whoa, look at how cool that looks. And now I can write equals equals. And I feel so good. Like when you do an index array indexer or something yeah. like that, like people <laughs> don't do these things anymore. I feel like maybe they do. I could be wrong. Quote me, uh, you know, you're... you're or we do, tell um, me, listeners. I don't know. <laughs> I think um, operator overloading kind of got a bad rap in C++. I think people were abusing it a lot. And I think that bad rap, maybe it was a deserved bad rap. I don't know. I kind of liked them. I used to do terrible things with them, and I like that. But maybe that's not what you really want in internal software is people doing terrible things with operators. And so I think that we're all just a little hesitant to do too much operator overloading. Um, function syntax is readable just because there's a word there and you can guarantee people understand what that word is going to mean. So I think it's just falling out of favor, one of those things. Whereas in F-sharp, I should say, they still embrace and love operator overloading. They, they overload everything. They make up new operators and they're like, it's it's a plus, plus, less than smile emoji, <laughs> greater than <laughs> wink. And, you know, that, you know, deletes the database. So, you know, just... You should know that the wink, the wink told you it deletes the database. Yeah. 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 Uh, But, but equals equals and not equals are the allowed operator overloads. You're expected to, to implement these things. And yeah, the syntax is cute. (laughs) Yeah. It's super cute. And I was feeling really positive. I'm like, I'm feeling real positive about my implementation overall. And I was reading through this blog post. So that's the thing is you start to read blog posts and a lot of these blog posts are from a long time ago. So they have like old code, but I was reading this one from Sergey. This is on MS, uh, MSDN. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It's just called dissecting the code. I, I don't know. And it's called performance Impl- implications of default struct equality. And it was one of the most fascinating reads. Like I was geeking out over <laughs> structs and it's great because it's all new stuff too. Um, and this made me realize that there was additionally, um, I, I was not implementing my equals correct. I was not implementing the equality operators. And additionally, it was pointed out to me that I should not only implement these things, but I should implement I equatable, which yeah. is a way 
of implementing an interface to say this is equatable and it's strongly typed. It's generically typed. You can strongly type it. So your equals, which I had already implemented, now works. So it all fits Mm -hmm. into this equatable thing. I don't know what the performance or why that's better, but it sounds like good. Well, it's always good to add yet another equals function to the already huge mass that we have to implement. Yeah, great. (laughs) I'm just kidding. It is actually a really good thing because if you're writing code that you do want to be fast or do want to make sure it's correct and gets the right inputs, then you can just say, I only want objects that are are equatable. You want to be flexible, but otherwise, you know, you want uh, things that'll behave the way you expect them to. There is another interface that I love. It's the iComparable. And that's just, um, that returns three things. Is it equals? Is it less than? Or is it greater than? It's got to be one of those three things. And it's kind of unfortunate that it's two different interfaces and you kind of should implement both. If you implement one, you should pretty much implement the other. Um, But iComparable really is if you ever expect to sort by these objects. In the case of yours, like, do you ever need to sort them? No, but then you also worry what happens if people do sort them, <laughs> you know? Um, but usually IE quality is at least good enough. Um, and it's optional. You really don't need it. it. It's not a requirement by any stretch. Yeah, it's a good one. Then you can, because you can also do that and you can also do equality comparer, which is a, a whole separate like, class. Because like I'm just implementing it on this thing, but I could actually put it in a whole separate class so people could use inequality compare to seems interesting. I don't know if that's really required either, but it seems like just on the struct is good. Well, equality compare is kind of an interesting beast. I think it's um, an acknowledgement that these equality rules are a little bit tricky. Like, do I call the rooted equals object thing, which is slow because you have to box things. We always get back to boxing. Boxing is bad. And, um, (laughs) or should I call, uh, equals equals, or should I call the interface I equality? Uh, let's say you were handed two objects in your code and you yourself, James, want to check if they're equal to each other. You don't know how to implement all these rules. They're complicated. So you can use this equality, um, uh, compare object that will do all that heavy lifting for you. So you don't really have mm. to think about it. And that's, what's so beautiful about that. So usually that's something you don't have to think about because that thing's taking on all the complexity for you. I like that. Yeah. There's so much, so many ways to equate equality inside of values, value types. Yeah, exactly. um, one thing that ended up coming out of this, I would say is that I learned a lot, but at the same time, I think I improved the API just on top of it. Cause I removed a lot of code. I added a lot of code, removed a lot of mm-hmm. code. And then I also made them read only. So I made them immutable because they're, people are never creating that this, nor do they ne- ever need to change the value. So mm-hmm. during this practice, I kind of relearned everything that I ever forgot about structs <laughs> because <laughs> I was just like, Oh, new struct, who cares? Right. So yeah. why would I even care about, you know, um, read only or not read only. And, mm-hmm. you know, there's performance implications there. And it seems seems as if, you know, it's easy to forget. Yeah, um, you're talking about performance, but there's also a correctness thing here. Um, we haven't gotten too deep into hash code yet, which is related to equals. Anytime you, anytime you override equals, the compiler immediately yells at you and says, you have to implement get hash code too. You know, it's very forceful. So we'll, we'll definitely get to that more. <laughs> But yes, I do want to get to that because that is literally the next thing that I learned, Frank. But let's take a quick break and thank our sponsor this week, Sync Fusion. You know Sync Fusion. 
you love Syncfusion because Syncfusion makes the most comprehensive advanced set of developer controls and dashboards for any single programming platform out there. Whether you're building websites with ASP.NET, Angular, React, Vue, or JavaScript, or mobile applications with Xamarin or UWP, or heck, even desktop, WPF, WinForms, or UWP applications, they have you covered. They have hundreds of beautiful charts, graphs, controls, optimized list views, pickers, activity indicators, everything that you could possibly want for your applications. On top of that, one of my favorite features of Syncfusion is their advanced file format support. I literally just had someone ask me on Twitter, hey, how can I parse an Excel file inside of my Xamarin application and upload it? Well, Syncfusion has you covered. They have Excel, PDF, Word, and PowerPoint support. Not only to view, but also generate and parse on the device. So you can get Syncfusion today by going to syncfusion.com slash merge conflict to learn about all of their amazing data and developer platforms that you can integrate immediately. So go over to syncfusion.com slash merge conflict. And thanks for Syncfusion for sponsoring this episode of Merge Conflict. You literally set me up for my next part, which is get hash code and some wonderful, amazing things. So Frank, why do I have to override get hash code? What is this get hash code about? Why do I got to care about get hash code? You have why to do I need be- my hash code? <laughs> because the compiler won't let you continue if you don't implement it. Obviously, that's why. Just return to oh, I see. It'll be fine. Yeah. Got it. Got yeah. it. Perfect. <laughs> so get hash code. Uh, the trouble here is if people are comparing objects, then obviously they're going to start putting them as like keys and dictionaries or, uh, yeah, that's about it. Keys and dictionaries. That's what we all use get hash code for. And the trick here is going back to your mutability and immutability. If you have something as the key in a dictionary, it would be terrible if the values in that object changed and therefore its hash code would change, but the dictionary never changed. And so you could have this terrible state where you think something's in a certain slot in a dictionary, but it really moved or something like Mm. part of it moved, but the other part didn't move. It'd be a really chaotic state. And so get hash code, we should dive deep into what it should do, but it should return a semi-unique integer for that object. And it's really important that if you implement that, that it doesn't rely on anything that can change in the object. So it should only ever rely on immutable parts of that object. Oh, got it. So if I, yeah, so since now I've changed all of my properties to be read only and my struct is read only that means literally the values can never change yeah you you made it super safe for yourself and that's a pretty well recommended way Uh, getting back to the multiple uses of structs if it is just a bag of data like you're using it this is the way to go the other use of structs is like interfacing with c code low level stuff where you're talking to the operating system or something not really needed there Don't, don't touch all this that's just like really low level junk. But if you're doing a struct that you expect people, especially public ones, you don't have to do this for all your private ones, but if you're exposing it in API, people will start throwing it in dictionaries and caches and things like that. So you definitely need to. So how would one go about possibly implementing <laughs> get hash code? I mean, my assumption is that I can call get hash code on all the objects yeah. or do something like, yeah. I mean, that's the interesting part. Cause I think the equals part is easy because you can, you can easily check 
multiple mm-hmm. values and like that is a developer like to me that's really easy but like get mm-hmm. hash code like i don't remember man when was the last yeah, time i did I get know. hash code yeah my, my joke was going to be go get a cs degree because like this is where you actually get into computer science and data theory and large spaces of data and how you can create orthogonal bases okay so what was the trick you mentioned you call uh get hash code on everything that you reference that's a good start actually uh because that will generate a semi-unique integer so you uh if you have a width and a height you call get hash code on the width call get hash code on the height maybe add them together and you have a semi-unique number round that to an sounds integer. good yep sounds good In- problem is every computer scientist right now is screaming no the agony what if what if it's 640 by 480 would be the same as 480 by 640 oh the world will be destroyed oh my god (laughs) that's a good point yeah right so honestly it's fine right in practical use it'd be it would be okay but it's not ideal by a long shot especially if they are being used as keys and something that's important where performance matters. And in that case, what you want to do is create a proper hashing function, which creates a semi-random number, in fact, as its output. Given the same object, it'll generate the same number, but ideally it's a random number coming out of this, like a proper like SHA-256 hash code, you know, something good. Mm. So it's really just a spectrum. Like, do I want to go for um technically correct (laughs) up to (laughs) you know cryptographically modern for 2018 you know like where do you draw the line so where did you draw the line well this became very interesting because somebody um this that sparked this conversation one of the contributors on github mentioned a way to do an unchecked thing from john skeet (laughs) Yeah. John Skeet, you know, he's everywhere. So why wouldn't Skeet he code. Have, have pointed to something on this was from 10 years ago. It was unchecked. Yeah. Skeet code is out there of doing like an XOR of the different things is what you use. Oh, no, I, I don't use XOR. XOR is an old trick. You should really go read uh, Donald Knuth, The Art of Computer Programming. Come back in 20 mm. years and let me know what he said. <laughs> <laughs> but okay. he used XOR a lot. I remember that much at least. <laughs> Um, I use a I use a simple technique which I also stole from John Skeet, but I've I've known for a long time. I just I like his implementation, so I memorized his and use it everywhere. The idea is simple: you create um, an orthonormal basis using prime numbers. So every data element in your object goes on its own axis. You add up the axes, you get a unique number. It's very simple. It's elegant. But the best part is it's super easy to memorize. You just initialize a variable to a prime number, multiply that number for every object by another prime number, and add in the hash code. So instead of just purely adding in the hash code, you're just doing some multiplications with prime numbers to make it a little more random That's all you're doing. You're guaranteeing that the order matters. So 640 by 480 is not the same hash code as 480 by 640. They would be unique. And you're throwing in a little bit of entropy just for fun. Hmm. So that sounds like a lot of fun. Um, <laughs> it's good code. And... I like it. So, But you didn't like it? No, because it seems, it seems like a lot to do. Because <laughs> I don't... When you... I don't know. Whenever I introduce the word unchecked, I feel very uncomfortable. Yeah. I don't know... I don't know what that means and I don't like it. And, right. um, <laughs> um, and that, that's where I kind of get into a weird part, you know? Yeah. So I was reading this blog post further 
Um, and it's called Performance Implications of Default Struct Equality in C-Sharp. So I was reading further and I found something very unique, which they implemented get hash code. And what they did is they created a value tuple of all of the properties and then called get hash code on that value tuple. Oh, <clears throat> this is so clever. <laughs> I remember the first time I saw this, I'm like, that's cheating. You're just cheating. That's not fair. I memorized these stupid prime numbers and the skeet code, and I've been typing it out dutifully all these years. And now you're just cheating. It's cheating. <laughs> <sighs> but you're right. It's very elegant. You just do like parentheses, name all your properties, write parentheses, dot get hash code. Done. Sold. It's so cute. It's so cute. It and it and it works because um of this, like how it works is it doesn't box anything. Nothing is is boxed at all. Um and and it just keeps stuff on the stack and and how value tuples work from my understanding is it basically is doing very similar things to what yours does in a way. Uh, or maybe not. I don't actually understand how yeah. it works, but it's beautiful and amazing. Well, fortunately, you can go get the source code to value tuple and see exactly how it works. There is actually a helper class out there, and I'm semi-blanking on its name, but it's think of it as Git hash code helper. <laughs> it's out there somewhere. <laughs> and that thing is kind of nice because you just construct it and say, here's one of my properties. Here's another one of my properties. Here's another. All right, give me the hash code. It's a builder. Mm. It creates it for you. And if you look at the source code to value tuple, at least the last time I looked at it, it was using one of these. And so you could just see very clearly how it worked. The nice thing about that is that the compiler is optimized for it. So it turns this very succinct, elegant code into something that's actually efficient also. So you get the best of both worlds. Yeah, it's very nice. I think you're looking just for hash code, like literally hash code. So I think in .NET Core 2.1, I, I started okay. a thread on this. Ah. There's hashcode.combine, and you just ah. throw all your properties in there, and it just Good does name. it. <laughs> Perfect. Yeah. 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 yeah it's, uh, I, I thought about using that, but it's funny. They introduced that around the same time they introduced value tuples. So it's just like, nope, just going to use that. That's much simpler. It seems really nice. And I, I think the the biggest thing to kind of end and talk about this on is maintainability because this seems to be the next largest conversation that I had. Now, luckily for me, I don't, I'm not adding a lot of properties ever to this. And if they are, it's very small structures, but that means that if I add another property, I need to go update. I need to go update yep. my unit tests. I need to go update these things automatically. And I had, um, someone write to me and they said, Hey, you're, you're doing great. First off, that's cute. That, that's not what they said. They, they wasn't, it wasn't, it was like, that's a cute, that's cute. That's start cute. patronizing. Uh, Is that what they did? <laughs> no. So we'll, yeah, a little bit. So this was Jerome and who else was it? Jerome and Carl said, Hey, from inventive, they said, we have this code gen tool. You just add our NuGet package, add an attribute and you know, we'll just generate everything for you. Uh-huh. Love uh -huh. it. <laughs> yeah. Do you love so, it? What do you think? What do you think about that? All right. So this is code gen. Um, in this case, there's multiple ways to do it. I was following this conversation. So it sounded like what their library does is you add this tag and then at build time, it generates uh, an additional C sharp file with, you know, we're, we're all used to this like 
UI backing forms and all that stuff. It's a code gen file. And that implements all this craziness for you, you know, automatically. I should, I, I've gone this far and I haven't mentioned F sharp only once and it. I have to get at least two in. <laughs> F sharp has um, a, a record like, um, a struct like thing called a record that generates all this data for you. So there is something to be said for you kind of wish the compiler did all of it for you. And that's what they're trying to provide with a library like this. But instead of the compiler doing it, it's a <clears throat> third-party NuGet that implements this at build time. And how do I feel yeah. about it? I don't use them. I I love <laughs> I love CodeGen in principle. I just, uh, I, I don't know what it is about it. I, I don't like it so much. I don't know. It's a toughie. Yeah, uh, you know, they did say that there was a way to have it just pump out the class and you can add it automatically and things mm-hmm. like that. And I go, you know, I, I, I love that someone did this. And had I written it for myself, I would use it. Or if it was baked into the compiler, it, it's, I guess I, it's a tiny bit of a trust issue, but it's also that, you know, I, I still maintain code from 10 years ago. Will the library change in 10 years? Will it still work? Oh, NuGet versions, everything should work out. But I guess I just have a lot of fear and uncertainty. And if it's baked in, you know, I, I like things that come from, you know, the compiler and the CLR. I don't know. It's a weird yeah. bias. And I don't know what it is. I just, I like to see the, cause this is my argument because they were trying to understand like why I don't like it and, and why I don't, why I wouldn't use it. And I go, yeah, you know, I, I don't know what you're doing, right? It might be absolutely pixel perfect code. Like there's no reflection or anything, which is great, mm-hmm. but, and it's just implementing what I'm doing, but I'm like, I just like to. I just like to see the code. I don't, I don't know what it is. And what if I change properties and what if I do stuff? I'm like, I just, I need to see it. And if I don't see it, then I don't, I don't know. And maybe I'm, maybe I'm just old school uh, or something, but I don't know. Yeah. uh, But again, like in F sharp, you don't see the code either. The compiler generates it. So uh, maybe I should just start using these things. Maybe I'm just holding back for stupid reasons. But you did bring up uh, reflection. And I do want to say here and now, please don't use reflection for implementing equals or get hash code. I know it seems uh, like so easy because you could write one generic function that did everything and it's very tempting and all that. But the performance is absolutely atrocious. And we brought up Knuth. I'm bringing up Knuth twice now. said, you know, no premature optimization. It's the root of all evil and all that stuff. But this time, it just hurts my soul to think about how much <laughs> computational power will be used in that equals and get hash code function that just for the sake of the planet Earth, people don't use reflection for those functions. It is true because you don't know how often these are going to be called in, in on Android, for instance, the sometimes it will call um you know, on the milliseconds, the nanoseconds, it'll be so mm-hmm. fast. It's just blah, 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 blah. It's like, it, it just triggers so many changes. And, you know, we're in the business with Xamarin Essentials to not slow down op- applications and not to get mm-hmm. in the way and to be optimized. So, you know, we, we don't use any reflection anywhere, to be honest with you. And, and I'm just not a reflection person. I just, I believe in seeing it and trying to optimize where I can be. And if reflection is an optimization somewhere, or maybe it's removing reflection that becomes the optimiza- optimization, then I'm for it. And, and it is that trade-off, right? Because you just said the, the, the developer mind, like my developer mind is to 
how can I solve one thing elegantly and then never have right. to worry about it again? Right. Just, ooh. Yeah. But no, <laughs> there's other trade-offs. Yeah. Um, I, I, I abuse reflection left and right. I think it's a very big hammer and I love to use it. I smash down walls. If something gets in my way, I reflect right through it. No problem. But there's <laughs> a time and a place for everything. You know, I, I would never do it on a hot path or anything like that. So I don't want to make it sound like I don't use reflection because, oh boy, do I, I am terrible about it, but I know the costs at this point. <laughs> there you go. Well, I don't know how we talked about equality compares for 36 minutes, Frank, but we did it. I think everyone loves nerdy episodes. So deep diving into structs and equality. Oh my God, equality. But yeah, this was fun. And you know, I don't think we do actually talk about like, oh my God, all the ways to equals things. And maybe that's good. <laughs> maybe all our programs aren't relying on it good. But when it does matter, you do kind of want to get it right. It yeah, makes a difference. Yeah. Yeah. There's it's it's I think it's really important. It's something that people don't talk about. And to be honest, when we were going into episode 100, you know what people wanted? Deeper dive episodes. So we deliver for you, our listeners. And of course, you can tell us what you want to listen to each and every week by writing into us. Go to mergeconflict.fm. You can send us an email. We read those, which is awesome. We also read reviews. If you leave us a review over on Apple Podcasts, you can, of course, like, rate, subscribe, share with all your friends and family members out there. It really helps the show quite a bit. You can also become a Patreon backer by going to mergeconflict.fm and hitting the um, subscribe button, support button over there. And the support button will take you right to our Patreon page where you get behind the scenes, you get our Discord chat, and you get a bunch of goodies delivered to your doorstep. You can follow us everywhere on the internet at Merge Conflict FM, at James Montemagno, at Proclarum. And that's going to do it for this week's Merge Conflict. So until next time, I'm James Montemagno. And I'm Frank Kruger. Thanks for listening. Peace. <laughs>